What's up, what's up? Hi everyone. Welcome back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we discuss popular culture with a black feminist anthropological lens. I'm Alyssa, a third year sociocultural anthropology PhD candidate, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. Boop, boop, boop. Candidate, heard a slick, slick slide in here. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Finally, right. Hey y'all, I'm Brendan. I'm a fourth year sociocultural anthropology PhD candidate and I also use she, her pronouns. On today's episode, we will discuss Black women's mental health by way of Naomi Osaka's boldness, weathering, and the commercialization of self-care. Before we get into it, we want to give a huge thank you to everyone who has donated to the podcast or engaged with us on Instagram and Twitter. We wouldn't be doing this without y'all. Also, if you're listening to this on the day it's released, then get ready for some big Gemini energy. It's <laughs> the day before Brendan's birthday. She's turning the big 2-8. Pound, pound, pound. Ba, 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 two pound. Eight. Wow. How did, you know. How, how's how? it feel? How's it feel? What are your plans for your second birthday in a Ponder replay? Well, <laughs> last time... I tried to have a birthday party and it ended in a fight. So this year <laughs> I'm, I'm going to um, have a Zoom birthday party. I'm going to keep things safe physically. You know, you're invited, of course. You know, yes. And I'm going to do karaoke, actually. Oh, no. I figured it out. <laughs> I figured out how to do Zoom karaoke. So that's what we're going to do. And I next can't sing. <laughs> Oh, you don't have to do it's, it's karaoke. Nobody really sings. Like, if you take karaoke too seriously, you don't need to be doing it. You need to be on American Idol. That's um, true. That's true. And then next week, I'm going to go to Miami. Oh, yeah. Oh, exciting. Mm. So we'll see. You know, and if you want to roast me about going to Miami, feel free to do it. But also send, <laughs> send me some money, too. So roast me, but send a few dollars. Like, I um, I look forward to it. It's with two of my friends. We're going to um, wear wigs and change, our, <laughs> and change our names. And that's how we're going to be in Miami. Okay. It's going to be one of those weekends. <laughs> I, I already know. Well, the, I already know. The idea is like, I'm not trying to spend my own money on nothing. <laughs> um, but <laughs> before I really tell on myself, <laughs> I'm going to bring it back to the episode topic today, right? Like I am thinking about taking care of myself, celebrating all month long. So I got my trip. I'm having my Zoom birthday party. And then the rest of June, I'm just going to be like chilling. All right. June is for Brendan. Love to see it. Love to see it. I love, I love to be it. Love to see it. I love to be it. <laughs> How about you? How are you taking care of yourself? Mm, yes. Well, Brendan, I am glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> That's my reporter voice. I've actually started journaling, um, mm. you know, last week. It's something that I haven't done since I was a child, you know, and so I'm just trying to write my thoughts out, do a little bit of reflecting. Although now I'm like, I really missed an opportunity by not doing a daily diary. You know, I could have been the next Samuel Pepys or something. Like, I don't know who that is. Who is Samuel <laughs> Pepys? <laughs> who is that? <laughs> Samuel Pepys was this British guy. He kept a private diary for like 10 years in like the 17th, 18th century. So he documented the plague and the Great Fire of London. 
you know, it turned out to be a really important historical record. Um, so unfortunately, I won't be like the next plague diarist, <laughs> but the future will have all of our tweets and our memes to look at when yeah. we want to learn about the great pandemic of 2020. Oh my goodness. And I'm <laughs> sure they'll be like horrified at some of the things that have been said and done for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Yeah, about the journaling thing, I also journal um, when I feel moved to. I used to be a compulsive diary person until multiple people in my life started reading it when I was a child, so I stopped really doing it. Okay, that's that's why I stopped too. So, you know, if you are a parent or a sibling of someone who journals, please leave their shit alone. Thank you. Um, but yeah, like now I journal when I'm really feeling it and like, it helps me process, but it also feels weird narrating my life. Mm. So I hope that it is a fruitful practice for you. Now you're just getting back into it. Really hope it's fruitful and like you're able to really process because writing, I feel like as scholars, we do a lot of writing to process what what's going on in the world, but like we need to do writing to process what's going on inside of ourselves too. You know, it's just a good way to release, release stress and, you know, get your ideas out there so you're not internalizing all of the shit mm-hmm. that black women mm. have to experience, which I think is a nice transition to our next segment. For real. Where we're going to talk about the way that racial stress is internalized and embodied, unfortunately. Unfortunately. So, Brendan, what's the word? So, the word for today... Ladies and gentle thems is <laughs> I just wanted to say that just one time. Um is weathering. And again, we're not returning to Christina Sharp's version, even though I'm sure she's also talking about this tangentially. This version that we're talking about and introducing today certainly shows that Sharp's formation of it is more than just conceptual. There's an actual physical effect of the weather, the climate that is anti-Blackness. Mm-hmm. So in 1992, Dr. Arlene Geronimus published a scientific study that concluded that Black children born to Black teenage mothers fared better than those to older mothers, even those who were in kind of prime childbirthing age, which according to this study was the 20s to early 30s. And this trend was not reflected in the data collected from white mothers. So so from these data, she devised a weathering hypothesis, which stated that the health of African-American women might begin to de- deteriorate in early adulthood as a physical consequence of cumulative socioeconomic disadvantage. Yes. So this is a medical term, and it's one that posits that Black people experience early health deterioration as a consequence of the cumulative impact of repeated experience with social or economic adversity and political marginalization. So since that intervention almost 30 years ago, researchers, they've tracked the effects of racial and socioeconomic stress on multiple areas of Black life. So you might have read about erosion or the idea of chronic racial stress. In a pretty recent essay, the McGill University philosopher Alia Alsaji, she evokes weathering through her concept of weariness, mm. and she examines the COVID-19 pandemic to demonstrate, quote, the eroding, grating, and crumbling of racialized flesh, end quote, that occurs over the long durée, and not just over this year of the pandemics. And you might have heard that the pandemic took away, what, two to three years off of Black people's life is the 
the epidemiologists or oh let me not say names i don't know the people who do health stuff <laughs> i was like let me not name it and i don't know um two to three years like as if our life expectancy isn't already lower mm-hmm. on average than other people's mm. And it's like, yeah, this chronic racial stress takes a toll on many aspects of Black life, like ranging from increased incidences of maternal mortality to racially differentiated diagnosis of obesity. Yeah, yeah. I actually recently learned that there was a study that showed that even when Black women are following the exact same diet as white women, we lose less weight. So this, this like chronic stress alongside a lot of other things like lower access to medical care and fresh food, which, you know, wouldn't have really played into the, to this like diet study necessarily, but like the chronic stress actually influences obesity rates. And, and yet people want to be like, oh, black people are just lazy or, you know, they're, they're this and they're that. It's their fault that they're, that there's obesity, but mm, Mm. nope. You know, obesity was invented, but that's true. That's we true. have to. We will have to do an episode on fat on fat phobia uh, soon. It's we'll on our list. It. It's on our it's list. On our list. <laughs> um, so you know, differentiated diagnoses in obesity. So it's more likely for you if you are black, you're more likely to be diagnosed as obese. Um, mental illnesses like depression and schizophrenia. We know there's an overrepresentation of um, or a perceived overrepresentation of black men who are diagnosed with schizophrenia. Right, chronic diseases like diabetes and stroke, right, and aging illnesses like dementia and Alzheimer's. So contrary to what you might expect, social class actually has little to no effect on the impact of chronic racial stress. So Black people from all walks of life experience the harmful effects of weathering and erosion, though those from middle to upper class backgrounds may have more access to adequate healthcare treatments. But, and this is a big but, this has not been proven the case for Black expecting mothers. Poor, middle-class, and rich Black women report experiencing racial discrimination before, during, and after childbirth, which is something that we witnessed with Serena Williams coming forward. Beyonce even described experiences of racial discrimination when she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you're interested in reading more about Black women's experiences with um, maternal healthcare, Donna A. Davis's book, Reproductive Injustice, Racism, Pregnancy, and Premature Birth, discusses this in depth. It's one of my favorite ethnographies that came mm. out in 2019. Um, and we're just going to say this, y'all. Like, Black capitalism is not going to save us, as evidenced by Black maternal mortality rates. Like, it's not going to save us. Exactly. Exactly. I think we're going to get into that a little bit in the next segment. But just to round this out, The cumulative effects of racism, particularly anti-Black, economic, medical, educational, and housing policies, just just to name, you know, a few. A little little bit. A little bit. (laughs) That's like we end up with shortened life expectancies, Mm -hmm. as I was just saying. So in 2011, the average life expectancy for a white woman was 81.1 years, whereas for Black women, it was 78.2. Black men also have a lower life expectancy. It's 72.2 years compared to the 76.6 for white men. So life expectancies for black trans people now, those are significantly lower than Mm -hmm. cis black people due to lack of access to proper medical care, increased rates of incarceration and extreme poverty and the lack of community support and care. 
So the impact of chronic racial stress on Black trans people results in higher rates of depression than their white counterparts. So while class may have little effects on the experiences of chronic racial stress, gender has been shown to compound its effects. And so as more data emerges around Black queer and trans experiences, we're able to bear witness to a particular form of precarity that may limit their ability to participate in, say, marches and uprisings. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Black trans women may choose not to participate in protests or uprisings because an arrest could mean a stay in a men's prison where they could be killed or subjected to sexual violence or both. And so Black weathering and erosion are phenomena that occur as a result of chronic racial stress. And at the same time, yeah. we are being tasked with solving the dilemma of these shortened life expectancies and decreased life chances. Yeah. Why can't you increase your own life? You know, that's the question. Why can't you extend your life? Why can't you lose weight? Why can't you do all of not get diabetes? (laughs) (laughs) This world. Uh, I think one of the things that as I like we were doing the research for this episode and I was thinking about weathering um, was like. The landmark study for understanding Black weathering was conducted through an examination of Black maternal and infant outcomes. So in a sense, mm-hmm. right, Black mothers birthed a new way of understanding the cumulative effects of anti-Black racism that was then taken up to explore the ways that racism harmfully impacts Black men. Right, So we kind mm-hmm. of see these like, mm-hmm. you know, you talked about uprisings and um, things like that, but this kind of the ways, I don't know, the microcosm of the macrocosm society where Black women are at the front lines of doing all these things um, and they seem to then turn around and benefit Black men almost exclusively. And mm. here, I think it's another example of that. When we think about weathering, a lot of the scientific studies focus on the effects of like on Black men's bodies, but it was actually grounded in Black maternal health. And mm-hmm. so in many ways, right, Black women's bodies and experiences make the experiences of Black people and Blackness legible, yet violence against Black women and girls continues to be underrecognized. Um, so I just think about like the question then moving from this, right, is like, how can we provide appropriate care for them, for the Black women and girls in our lives, but also for ourselves during this time? And For every Black non-man out there who feels pressure to perform or to be a a super person or to pretend like weathering is not affecting you, right, to conform Mm -hmm. to the expectations of a white supremacist culture, say it with me. We are not going to let these people kill us. We are not going to let these people kill us. Like, period, right? (laughs) Um, And what we're talking about today, right, is some of these strategies for self-care in a white supremacist world. And we're not going to talk about no bubble baths and facials, y'all, even though, you know, your girl does believe in both of those. Um, <laughs> my Taurus Venus, I, I love I love me a good bubble bath. Right? We're actually going to talk about some concrete strategies that won't cost you nothing. Um, in our next segment, what we're reading. So what are we reading today, Alyssa? What we're reading today is Caritha Mitchell's 2018 article, Identifying White Mediocrity and Know Your Place Aggression, a po- a form of self-care, which was published in the African American Review. So Dr. Caritha Mitchell is an award-winning author, cultural critic, and professional development expert. She is also a professor of English at Ohio State University, a literary historian, and a runner. She specializes in African American literature, racial violence throughout U.S. literature and contemporary culture, and Black drama and performance. Her research examines how texts, both written and performed, 
have helped terrorized families and communities survive and thrive. She has published two books, Living with Lynching, African-American Lynching Plays, Performance, and Citizenship, 1890-1930, published in 2011 with the University of Illinois Press, and From Slave Cabins to the White House, Homemade Citizenship in African-American Culture, which was published in 2020, also with the University of Illinois Press. Where do we begin? I feel like I ask this every time. <laughs> and <laughs> it's always for me because I'm always like, you know, where do I start? Because uh, we just we we just choose such rich content. Yeah, and I feel like my Gemini in this is like I just want to talk about everything all at once. Um, and there were like so many nuggets of wisdom in this piece. Like, yeah, yeah, I it was it was exactly the right essay at exactly the right time for me. I love it. I love it. <laughs> when I encountered it the first time, I was like, yeah, I needed to see this. It was I think towards the beginning of my journey at Columbia and I was like yes I needed this I remember the first time I read it I was just like duh like everything she's <laughs> saying is like duh and not duh in a sense of oh this is obvious but does and why haven't I seen this before of course this is what's happening to me mm-hmm. um and Mitchell starts out by setting the scene and she tells us plainly right how the election of 45 is yet another manifestation of what she calls know your place aggression and so she defines know your place aggression as the quote flexible dynamic array of forces that answer the achievements of marginalized groups such that their success brings aggression as often as praise so any progress by those who are not straight white and male is answered by a backlash of violence both literal and symbolic both physical and discursive that essentially says know your place and i think one of the sentences in the opening that really struck me was just where she says quote for anyone other than a straight white man success often inspires aggression and the accomplishment need not be monumental or spectacular to inspire large scale and extremely hostile backlash Mm -hmm. when i read that i was like for real like getting the a in a class with somebody and you know i'm be real usually with when when I experience know your place aggression most of the time it is from white women and they'll be like oh like I oh uh, how did you how what, huh. how did you get that you know like I've definitely mm-hmm. experienced backlash for shit that, that people thought I didn't deserve um and that I was out of place for having accomplished so much like I remember in high school having to deal with racist guidance counselors and classmates Uh, In college, I dealt with that too. In graduate school, it's like, oh, every step of the way, Um, each time in all these spaces, right? It's it's like my existence in these spaces, whether it be in an honors AP classroom, the physics lab, or an anthropology department, right, was was questioned. Yeah, and I think what's what's interesting about her work actually is that most people would label these as microaggressions. Mm Mm-hmm. And she really shows us that these are not micro at all. Like, this is aggression. This is violence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've talked about some of our experiences a little bit on the podcast. And for me, you know, growing up in Toronto, I think I just, like, blocked it out. I just ignored this shit to the point where I barely, (laughs) yeah, I just, I barely remember it. But I, one, you know, there are a couple things I remember I wrote a book report on the color purple. I was very ambitious. I wrote a book report on the color purple in grade seven. And the teacher assumed that I based it on watching the movie. And 
she was like, okay, you can't just like write a book report on a movie. Wait, wait. Oh, just because you are only aware of the movie. (laughs) Exactly. So my mom, my mom was like, "Mm -mm, mm -mm." my mom had to come to school and let them like, let this white woman know that Mm -hmm. I was an avid reader, like that I love to read. That's all I pretty much did at that age. So this woman, she, well, she ended up, she stood down, but she was, my mom had to go in there and she wasn't happy. So, you know, there was always that with, you know, if I had a new teacher in high school or something like that, they wouldn't believe that I wrote my papers. And so I remember like other teachers being like, oh, you know, so-and-so came uh, and asked me about, about your work. And I told them that you're a great student. So basically these teachers were checking with other teachers to see if I was really as good of a student as my paper suggested. Mm-mm. It's like, wow, okay, so the evidence is right in front of you, but that's not proof enough. Mm-mm. Okay. So I mean, obviously, I mean, clearly you just watch movies and copy papers off wherever kids and copy papers off. I don't I don't know. I, I wasn't even at an age where I, it wasn't a time in the world where you could like steal papers from the internet yet. <laughs> Yeah, we still had floppy disks when I was in school, so. (laughs) So did I. (laughs) Wait, you were just joking. No, we actually did have floppy disks. No, I used floppy (laughs) disks. Okay. I love floppy disks. You have to stick it in, make sure it saves. Don't pull it out before it's Yeah. And they had like three megabytes on them, if that. Like, that was just so sad. Um, Okay, but we're getting getting off track. (laughs) But okay, so... Mitchell says that these acts are basically ways to ensure that the marginalized never feel safe taking up space. Mm -hmm. So I think in this essay, the question that she's trying to answer, that she's thinking about is, why is it that when Black Americans embody everything the nation claims to respect, they face increased violence? Mm -hmm. So among other examples, she cites Ida B. Wells being radicalized when she realized that her friends were lynched in 1892, not because of an alleged rape, which is what people often, you know, what white people often claimed was the reason for Mm -hmm. for lynching black people. It was actually because of their entrepreneurial success. See the uh, Tulsa Wall Street massacre as well. Mm -hmm. And then in more recent times, she shows how the Obama family was the most criticized and the most disrespected first family. Absolutely. And... She explains that as American culture continually wanting to remind marginalized groups of their place. So in a sense, we are done and undone by our accomplishments. Mm. Like there's, it's just a, it's just a no win situation. And so any progress or success is met with backlash. And that's how she explains the election of 45. I guess that's what we're calling him now. (laughs) 45, I just, and, I, mean, I just can't say 45 and 46. This is, what's the use of names, names anymore? Um. <laughs> but I think it's important to note that this essay is not just about this critique of the way violence and black cultural production are read. She's actually trying to help black people reorient our interpretations of our racist, of our racist experiences. So whether that's these quote unquote microaggressions, physical violence, or any of the shifting forms that racism takes. Yes, I, I think it's really important to note that it's like she she's very clear about it, right? She's like, I'm not here to spell out all these violent things to say, hey, look, this is violent. She like that 
the knowing is yes, the violence is here and it's going to come. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is, and this is how you deal with it. And this is how you shift your mindset because what they're doing over there is, is not about to change. Um, but she does offer suggestions on how white people can change. <laughs> also <laughs> in this article, right, she offers some of her own self-care strategies. And I like how she names these as self-care strategies, this kind of active work that she does. And so one of them is she is always identifying know your place aggression. And the second one that she highlights in the article is she talks about actually doing a practice of highlighting how often white mediocrity is treated as merit. One thing that she, she also notes, which I love, is that violence is always committed whenever know your place aggression is present, no matter how subtle, right? Or when whiteness is treated as if it always has merit, that is a violent act, right? Period, mm. right? And as Mitchell says, the evidence of whiteness being treated as if it always has merit is everywhere. And when I when I saw that, when I tell you I'm I was crying, <laughs> like literally typed crying in my PDF reader, like I'm crying. <laughs> Love to see it. One I, one thing I want to come back to is I feel like we talk about violence a lot mm. on this podcast, or I should say that we use the word violence. And I think there are some people out there who don't think that a microaggression is violent mm -hmm. um, or who think that we should be really selective about what we identify as, as violence. Mm -hmm. Maybe because like it's overuse might dis diminish its power. I don't know. So what I mean, what I would say is that violence is, is harm perpetrated by an actor. I think it can be as broad as that. I don't, I don't know. How are you defining violence when, when you talk about it? Yeah, I think I agree with you and add that violence can also be perpetrated by an institution. So not just like a, an act. When I think of actor, I think of an, a person. Mm. And so violence for me, when I think about it, occurs on multiple levels. It's an interpersonal level. So we talked about last episode, Alyssa kicking me. Like that's an interpersonal <laughs> um, version of it, right? And then there's the institutional form um, that we all have experienced in this ideological forms of violence. And so I, I really like what Mitchell says about violence that I think I naturally understood, but I like how she marks it, right? Which is that violence is a tool that, that marks who belongs and who doesn't. Mm. So I think about violence, like in my own work, I think about how violence marks and creates categories. So violence creates the category of Black. It creates the category of woman. It creates the category of victim. And you know, right, that a person is a Black woman by what can be done to them with impunity. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I think we'll definitely talk about that in our next segment. <laughs> Which we're not getting to yet, y'all. Don't worry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I had the, you know, the same kinds of reactions that you did while reading this. You know, I texted you and I was like, I am cackling. Like Look. this whole article had me weak in the best <laughs> way. You know, her writing is very clear, very poignant. She's, she states things in these really like matter of fact ways. Mm -hmm. And you just have to sit there and like, does she... Did she really just say that? Was mm -hmm. this really published? Yeah. <laughs> like, people really said, what? People are reading this? And I agree. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, and no I do. She did it. say that. <laughs> no, not at all. So, you know, 
I think I think that was great. Mm-hmm. And then throughout, I mean, throughout this, you know, she talks about how she uses identifying white mediocrity as a self-care tactic by talking about how she approached writing her book for tenure. Mm-hmm. So that was one of her examples. She was really pressured by her mentors to write her first book with, within this particular timeline that we have for tenure. But she was just like, nah, people are going to like apply these standards to me really harshly and really strictly because I'm a black woman. So it doesn't matter what I do. They're still going to hold me to a higher standard than everybody else. So I'm just going to focus on what I want to do. Her. And you know what? It worked for her because I'm pretty sure I saw on Twitter a few weeks ago that she was promoted to full professor. Mm-hmm. Which, so, congratulations. If you professor listen to Mitchell. Congratulations. No, uh, no assistant, no associate, just professor. And I remember her tweet too. She said something like, this is just confirming what I already knew about myself. Yeah. And I was like, boop, 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 boop. Pop, 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 pop. <laughs> Self-care. All right. And she talks about how noticing white medi- mediocrity also helps her helps her give herself credit for her work, right? Like, mm-hmm. like what you saw in the tweet. Um, she notes how her practice also allows her to examine how Americans and American institutions, quote, happily manufacture merit out of thin air as long as the beneficiary is white. And when I read that (laughs) phrase, I said, honey, the the examples just percolated in my mind. And here she's extending the analysis of David Leonard, who wrote about the manufacturing of innocence for straight white men who commit violent acts to Mm. discuss how the manufacture of merit for white people happens generally. And in her own life as a faculty member, researcher, and mentor, she described how she never assesses her accomplishments through the same lens as her counterparts because she recognizes that she had to work much harder to get there. So white people hold each other to much lower standards than they hold everyone else. I hope we all know this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, I hope we all understand this. And so many of their accomplishments are not necessarily accomplished because they, quote, earned it, right? It's, it's rather that the bar or the standards or the criteria does not exist for them in the same way that it exists for others. And so she says, quote, because American culture has never encouraged white people to hold themselves and each other to higher standards, merit is manufactured for them all. And innocence is manufactured for white people who don't even have the decency to be mediocre. <laughs> like... Like, period? Like, period? Like, what? In the article here, this is it. Like, this is it, right? And so the only way that this will change is if white people hold each other and themselves accountable to some actual standards, right? It's asking yourself, did I earn this? Or did my whiteness allow this to be given to me at the expense of others? Because let's be real clear, right? Nothing in this capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist, patriarchal, et cetera, society is, quote, earned, right, without impacting others. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Let's, let's, dis, let's disabuse ourselves of these notions. The example she gives to demonstrate the way that white people don't hold themselves to the same standards is rape culture, but mm-hmm. we'll get into that in a little yeah. bit. So. Mitchell says that recognizing know your place aggression and white mediocrity highlights what public discourse often allies, which is that we celebrate the successes of white men and discourage, diminish, or destroy everyone else's achievements. I like. Mm-hmm. I was just like, preach, preacher, preach. snippety snap, snap, snap. <laughs> preach, preacher. Yeah, I think. 
you know, what she's, what she's done with this and for, I mean, for herself. And I'm, I'm so like, <sighs> I'm just, I'm glad that we read this. It mm-hmm. is like, I'm so happy that she wrote this and published it because it has like given me tools now. Um, but, you know, she talks about identifying my white mediocrity as allowing her to put white people's judgments in their appropriate place. And then that helps her develop this healthy assessment of her own work mm. that's de- that's dependent on opinions that matter, you know, hers and her communities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, why I was saying earlier that this was the right article at the right time for me, you know, we talked about this in our grad school episode. There are a lot of periods of self-doubt. Yes. And that's where I am right now. I applied for several fieldwork grants and fellowships this year. And, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't successful. I'll tell everybody here it is this me being vulnerable on the podcast. I know. It I happens. Like, oh, man, you're getting real vulnerable with that. I know. It, listen, listen, y'all, it happens. It happens. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, of course, had me thinking, like, is my work really good enough? And, you know, I texted you. I was like, I didn't get this fellowship. And you were just like, don't even worry about it. Like, your work is always going to be held to a different standard. Mm-hmm. And, like, these structures are not made for us. So... You know, I was I was reading this article and I was like, yes, I have had to do more to arrive at the same place as everyone else. And that kind of thing will continue. So really, I shouldn't let it affect my self-worth at all. Like, purr, like, you are more than enough, <laughs> right? You have always been. And actually, it's just really interesting talking to Black women about graduate school because I have conversations sometimes and they'll be like, well, what do I need to do or say to get into this program? And it's like you know, baby girl, and I hate to say that, but like baby girl, like (laughs) you are the gift to these institutions. You Mm. validate their existence. Mm. Sometimes it's really hard to remember that just as much as we want to be accepted in these places, these places actually are dependent upon us to keep themselves going. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, but your money's coming. It's coming. (laughs) Big money. (laughs) Big money soon come. Mm. Wow. Oh, okay. I see you. You know, I'm practicing. Like, <laughs> next time I'll be like, I'm going to Jamaica, girls. Never okay. coming back. <laughs> listen, listen. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> okay, but of course, of course, you can't have one of these articles where you're talking about being a being a professor and a black woman without talking about teaching evaluations. And so those are back in the mix. And if you haven't listened to our grad school episode. In that, in that one, we talk about the way women of color are particularly disadvantaged with respect to teaching evaluations. And so Mitchell actually characterizes these, like the way that people write in these evaluations as another form of know your place aggression. Mm-hmm. And so being called aggressive, being called condescending, being told that you enter the classroom like Darth Vader, as Mitchell experienced is a way to remind you that the space is not made for you and a way to assert that, you know, we, we being whoever it is, white people generally, we can't respect you if you don't know your place. Mm -hmm. And so Mitchell points out that in all of these forms of violence, the subtext is always, you may be a professor, but you're still just a, Mm. insert Mm. pejorative here. Mm -mm. You may have a higher GPA than I do, but you're still just a, Mm. Brendan, you may have gotten that A in the class, but you're still just a... I mean, honestly, but that was what was said to me. So, but I'm from South Carolina. So anyway, I'm, we're going to keep it moving. <laughs> well, you, you know, there's... That's there's literally uh... what I was... That's literally <laughs> what was said. 
there's the uh, you know the content, and then there's their subtext. But among <laughs> among the more uh, liberal Northerners, <laughs> it's more of a you subtext. Know, you might go to Columbia, but you're still. Um, but yeah, I think what's also important to note about know your place aggression and white mediocrity be, mediocrity being given undue merit is that all of this is perpetuated by silence. So Mitchell talks about, as you mentioned earlier, Alyssa, about rape culture as, as a prime example, which exists not simply because there are sexual abusers and misogynists, but because that's not everyone, right? Like everybody's not out here harming people, right? The rape mm -hmm. culture persists and exists because there are people who are unwilling to upset the status quo. They're unwilling to challenge people who, who commit that, those kind of harms. So Mitchell writes that those who refuse to upset existing power dynamics are perpetrators' best allies, right? They quickly abandon anyone with less power, especially if that person has been victimized and had the nerve to say so, rather than be a good team player by suffering in silence. And so what, what we do when we allow white mediocrity to go without any kind of comment, right, and get married without any kind of comment, is we are, we are playing along, right? We're suffering in silence. And this is the type of attitude that has really allowed us to live in a world where white people can be mediocre and still succeed. And y'all, it always happens at the expense of others. I think people like, mm -hmm. we have to really sit and think about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this, this essay really helped me put into perspective some of the experiences that we've had in our department, some of the experience I've had in other places. Mm -hmm. And the way that when racist things happen, you know, people in power say to us, that's not who we are. That's not a reflection of our values. When it's actually like, this is exactly who you are. This is exactly who you have been. Mm -hmm. And believing that this is, that this situation that we're calling out is an aberration is exactly why things won't change. Right. So that's why people are like, oh, OK, of course we can, you know, we can arrest Harvey Weinstein and send him to prison. But this isn't this isn't reflective of the entire industry. It is. It is. It is. It is. It is when every actor who started out as a child was like, I was molested. I was this. I was that. It is. Mm -hmm. It is when, you know, all those YouTube documentaries, everybody has a dark history. Like. It is. Yep. So, I mean, this, this is paraphrasing, but like, we need to stop gaslighting ourselves mm -hmm. and we need to really start trusting our readings of situations. And she writes that, quote, when faced with evidence that the environment is hostile, especially when that hostility is inadequately addressed by those in power, it is important to empower oneself and others to call it what it is, even if only in private. So all of this to say, Recognizing know your place aggression is a form of self-care because it allows us to refuse the shame that's projected onto us and know that the violence that we are experiencing is actually a result of our success. And so that is how I wanted to tie this in to black capitalism and why we keep saying, or one of the reasons why we keep saying, is not going to save us. So you all might have seen our reel on Instagram. So someone actually said that to me, you know when I was explaining all of the possibilities uh, within abolition, you know, he was like, you're, you know, you're living, you're living in a fantasy world. All, you know, that, that's not really going to happen. You mm. know, why is it, this is, this is my favorite actually, you know, 
more black people are dying from diabetes and high blood pressure, but nobody says abolish Popeyes. Can I get false equivalencies for 200 Alex? <laughs> I mean, we might as well just hand out a PhD. Here we go. Here, here it is. You have solved all the problems. Here, here you go. So yeah, I mean, and so his argument was basically that Black people need to own their own businesses and, and work for themselves. And, you know, that's that's the thing that's going to save us. Mm-hmm. And so to, to clarify what black capitalism is in a, in a kind of broad sense, it's like it's essentially the belief that if the black community amasses enough wealth and economic power, that will bring us the political power to advocate for ourselves as full citizens. Mm. That's an illusion. And know your place aggression is a major reason why. Like, even Martin Luther King was like, mm, maybe black people don't need black capitalism. They need black socialism. And it was when he started making that shift in his rhetoric, that was when he was assassinated. Mm-hmm. So there's actually a really good episode about why, why like American politicians support black capitalism. It's on Code Switch. It's called Do the Golden Arches Bend Towards Justice. Uh-oh. And so the gist of that is like politicians basically get the get to sell the idea that they're being liberal, that they're supporting black people, while not actually, in a very literal sense, supporting black communities. Mm. So essentially all of this is say that know your place aggression means that buying black is not gonna help us mitigate racism. But I'm just gonna I'm just gonna let that let that percolate for y'all. Just listen to that one and then maybe we'll do an episode on this because it's a longer conversation. <laughs> right. Right. For real. And we might talk about some of your phase in that one too. I think mm, mm. one of the things that was so poignant for me uh, as Mitchell moves towards the end of this article is that she advises marginalized groups to take on a critical demeanor of shamelessness is what she calls mm. it, in which we recognize that it is our success and our accomplishments that bring on violence and not the white supremacist lie that we are inherently deficient. So we are not violated because there's something wrong with us. We're violated because our when we succeed, right, we put the mediocrity to shame. Mm. It's like, oh, I can do this, this, and this, and this, and this, and be here with you. And all you had to do was wake up in the morning and walk, hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that shame that Alyssa was talking about being projected earlier, right, There, there is shame around that. Like, you should feel, I mean, let me not say you should feel. I'm not pointing no fingers. One should sit and think and feel ashamed that you are in a place that a person of color, a black person, a black woman, a trans person had to work three to four times harder to be in. There's shame around that. But what happens and what happens through white supremacists lie and like racism, right? Is that shame is actually projected onto us, right? And mm-hmm. we take it up like it's ours. We internalize it and say, well, there must be something wrong with us, but it's not. Right. So one of the things that I'm working on right, is like holding no reservations about my work. Right. And you don't need to have those reservations either. Uh, it makes me think about that, the Toni Morrison quote where she talks about like racism being a distraction. Mm. And so like know your place. Aggression is a distraction to keep us from doing what we're purposed to do. And so what we have to do. Right. Is as Asada, just quote my girl Asada and Asada, <laughs> if you ever hear this, I'm sorry. I called you my girl, but I feel an affinity for you. Um, But as she said, right, it is our duty to fight for our freedom uh, and it is our duty to win. And I strongly believe that we will win. 
And one of the ways that we will is by taking on this demeanor of shamelessness. But speaking of winners and winning, right? I think we should move on to our next segment. Our next segment is what? What? What in the world? In the world is going on. What in the world? <laughs> Lodge. Lodge. <laughs> We're recording a lot later than we normally do, y'all, just just so you know. Yes. <laughs> we sound a little right. relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> so, the young tennis player, Naomi Osaka, has been in the news recently. She withdrew from the French Open. At least that's what the headlines are saying, and I take issue with that characterization. But, mm. you know, we can talk about that mm-hmm. later. In any case... Athletes in competition are generally contractually required to do press conferences after they compete, whether they win or lose. And so Naomi Osaka, she announced that she wouldn't participate in press conferences to protect her mental health. She's been living with depression and anxiety, which is worsened by attending these mandatory media events where people are like, well, how did you feel about losing? How did you feel about beating your idol? How did you, what, what were you feeling when you missed that serve? Like, imagine... Being expected to compete at, at the highest level in whatever it is that you do, and then having your every single move scrutinized, and even when you succeed, having your failures scrutinized. That must be awful. Mm. That must be absolutely awful. And you know what? I'm going to do a little aside. I remember reading someone, someone tweeted, what if academics aren't socially awkward? But the way that they act is just an effect of being scrutinized for every single thing you say, whether right or wrong. And I was like, I feel attacked. <laughs> attacked. Like, y'all, what if I what if I actually don't have social phobia, but it's just an effect of being an academic? <laughs> we'll have to talk about that. I'm I'm thinking a lot about like how much of my personality is actually a trauma response and how much of it is actually is me. But yeah, okay, there, yes, that is probably something we should talk about today since it is our Black women's mental health, but I guess <laughs> no. we didn't want to talk about our own. <laughs> no, we're just gonna, we're gonna open that up there. Um, it's like, how, what do you want to know? Do you want me to call my therapist? Like, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, thanks. Um, so yes, okay, so she she was like, okay, I'm not going to do these press conferences anymore. This is, you know, this is me taking care of myself. And then the mm-hmm. French te- the French Tennis Federation was like, all right, well, we'll, we'll just fine you $15,000. And that's common practice. You know, you might have heard of the, the trademarked line um, from Marshawn Lynch when he said, mm-hmm. I'm just here so I won't get fined. <laughs> yes, I say that all the time. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> There are some things I could definitely say that about. (laughs) So Naomi Osaka was like, all right, cool. I'll pay that. You know, she also wrote to the tournament privately offering to discuss the issues with those rules around media obligations. And so rather than them being like, yeah, you know, we can see how this would be difficult. Let's see how we can make this situation better for all athletes. They're just like, well, if you keep skipping your, your press conferences, then you'll you know, default in the tournament Hmm. in in your next matches and things like that. So, of course, this just became like a media circus and Osaka withdrew from the tournament in order to not take away from the other players um, and the event overall. Wow. 
I want to go back to something that you said earlier about why you take issue with that characterization. I'm curious to hear. I I have a suspicion about why you would, but I'm, <laughs> I want to hear you talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been thinking, I've been really trying to closely read. I know you say you, you close read things, but I've really trying to been look, I've really been trying to look closely at headlines and the way that they frame particular issues mm-hmm. and, you know, thinking about active voice and passive voice. And, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a lot of the headlines, Naomi Osaka is the one who's the main actor, right? So the headline will be like, Naomi Osaka withdraws from the French Open. But why aren't the headlines, the French Tennis Federation doesn't care about black women? Mm. It's a callback. If y'all don't know what I'm calling back, it's a callback. <laughs> get on your, get on the culture if you don't know what <laughs> that's a reference to. You know, but it's, it's just ridiculous that they expect people's best performances make them feel like shit when they don't succeed and even when they do succeed and then expect them to want to come back for more. And so it's just like the framing of the headlines themselves are a form of know, of know your place aggression, right? Mm-hmm. Like she, what she did was show her power and her success by saying, yep, I'll face these, pri- these financial consequences and prioritize me because I got it like that. And then she's getting, she's getting dragged for it. She's being blamed for it when it's like actually the, tennis and the media and the way that you know the expectations that we have around athletes is actually the issue where she's getting framed as the problem right oh you speak up about the problem you become the problem sarah ahmed (laughs) there it is i've you know if you're silent about your pain they'll kill you and say that you enjoyed it Mm. so that's zora that's me paraphrasing zora neil hurston yeah (laughs) I, I, like you were saying that this is, this is a prime example of know your place aggression outside of academia. We talked about a lot of examples inside earlier, but this is like literally what it looks like in the world. Right. And as you said, Naomi chose to do what she could do with her riches, which is to protect her mental health, which is like, what good is all that money if you can't even do that? Right. What good mm-hmm. is to have this money to be like, oh yeah, 15,000. Okay. At least I get to sit out and sit with my little boo and do what I need to do, right? Like, what's the point of that money? But that goes back to to what we were saying earlier about class and Black capitalism. Like, it's not going to save us, right? Being mm-hmm. rich is not going to save us from experiencing racism. It's not going to save us from experiencing anti-Blackness in particular. She is not supposed to have all this money. It's not supposed to have the choice to say, no, I will not subject myself to being what scrutinized, right? Like I'm not mm-hmm. going to subject myself to that. But I will say um, there's a reason why some people compare sports to slavery. I mean, that's all I'm going to say because I really don't want to offend nobody. But <laughs> we could think about Naomi. We could think about Serena. We could think about this past summer, the NBA protests. Andy W. NBA protests. The NFL and the way that they've been uh, like race curving. Is that what it's called? Oh, yeah. Colin Kaepernick. No, no. They've been. So I don't know if you've heard about this, but um, they would they were race norming. Yeah. For IQ um, to calculate brain injury compensation. Hmm. And so they were. Basically saying that black people have lower IQs to begin with. So the difference between whatever their their IQ would be after like 
these concussions and things like that hasn't been, hasn't reduced as much. And so they don't deserve as much of a settlement. Oh, uh, y'all can't come. Anyway, back to what I said, sports <laughs> to slavery. So, yeah. I mean, as, as another aside, I think that actually what, what happened to us with, you know, how not to travel like a basic bitch, which mm-hmm. if you all haven't listened to that episode, you know, we, we had a situation. I think that's also a form of know your place aggression. Please. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you, sorry, you're working towards PhDs and you dare call out my work and people agree with it, know your place. Mm. You may have several years of experience talking about race, but you're still just two black bitches. Mm. Mm. So we can't even afford to use Photoshop. (laughs) (laughs) We cannot. You know, you try to we use are Photoshop still... on this stipend. You get a, you know. Listen, honestly, you try to use Photoshop with this, with this time that we do not have. <laughs> exactly. That we're dedicating to this podcast. I, yeah, you know, actually, I hadn't even thought about or put that label on that experience, but absolutely, like, absolutely. And then, you know, getting the desirability piece comes back in there for me, too, of just, like, of how she, of how she used her desirability in certain ways, and then and mm-hmm. then you know in, insert black man prop right um, to also mm. signal other things, and we'll get maybe you know we'll have this talk for all our ZD diehards who be DMing us. We'll have a conversation <laughs> about how you know black cis men can be one of the people who who perpetuate know your place aggression against black women. Mm. Which is one, I mean, if I were to have something to add to the article, it would be, it would be that. Mm. Um, that mm. would be the thing I would add. Um, I, get, I see, I see you. But yes, <laughs> but okay, we will <laughs> this rewind. Is, <laughs> yeah, back to, um, yeah, getting back to what we were talking about, I loved what Venus Williams said in her press conference. So I don't know what the question was exactly, but I guess someone was like, how do you deal with the media questions and all of these things? And she was just like, I know they can't play as well as I can. So no matter what they say or what they write, they'll never hold a candle to me. Period. And I was just like, talk about a critical demeanor of shamelessness. Hey, hey. When it's <laughs> I like, see you. like literally, like your most formidable opponent is your sister. Mm. Mm. So someone said, "Who was it that said I'm I'm so happy that the only people who can beat Serena now are the black women who started playing because of her." Mhm. Hmm. Hmm. Like <laughs> Venus and Serena Williams are trailblazers, right? And black Naomi, excellence. Like <laughs> the best athlete in the world. Serena Williams is the best athlete in the world. Um Naomi Osaka is on her way, right? And and not just for her tennis skills, but also the way that she is making people uncomfortable with the status quo, like openly demonstrating her politics on the court, prioritizing herself, her mental health, her relationships, her self-care. And someone on Twitter said that Black women often demonstrate their strength by all the things that they're willing to put up with. But our real strength is about what we are not willing to put up with, right? So... There's a whole set of privileges that come, right, that allow 
folks to set and enforce certain boundaries, right? She could afford to spend, you know, 15,000, that ain't nothing, you know, mm-hmm. to protect myself. So a lot of us don't have that choice, right? But I think as we work towards a world where we are able to prioritize ourselves and our self-care, right, we are going to have to make those decisions and they're going to cost us because, because the point of this world is to make us do things that we don't want to do. Like, that's the point. I think that's a really good segue into what's been happening in academia to bring it back there, mm-hmm. you know, and how it is quintessential. Know your place aggression. Mm. You all may or may not have heard that Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, creator of the landmark 1619 project and MacArthur genius, Nicole Hannah-Jones was denied tenure at the University of North Carolina. And I went to Duke for undergrad. So this, I was <laughs> like, I mean, it makes sense, you know, honestly. Um <laughs> For all you UNC fans out there, just to do a little dig. <laughs> um, and for those of you who are, may not be aware, and I definitely wasn't until I started um, doing this PhD process, right? Tenure decisions generally go like this. You spend years building this thing called a file, your tenure file. And when you submit it, it typically has your publications or so articles, books you've written, um, things like that, your teaching evaluations, your CV, which you also want to make sure you include like students you mentor, honor thesis you supervise, things like that, letters from colleagues, and other things that show how you've contributed to the field and to academia broadly, and are supposed to demonstrate these things, you know, demonstrate whether you're worthy of a job for life. So your department reviews the file and then they're also outside reviewers. And if they approve it, it goes to the dean. And once your is approved there at the dean's office, your file goes to the provost and or to the president of the university. And once you pass all these steps, which Hannah Jones did, right, it goes to the board of trustees for sign off. And it was at the level of the board of trustees that her tenure case was denied. So effectively, this board of mostly old white men, one black woman, and one white woman, which, you know, I, I, I checked. I, 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 I went checking. through. <laughs> I did. I Alyssa looked, I looked at the board checking. of trustees. I counted, did the numbers. <laughs> you know, right. Most of them were are lawyers and bankers and probably know very little about the field of journalism. So, of course, right, this denial of tenure for her really comes out of a wave of like this conservative criticism around the 1619 project and other forms of critical race theory. So um, the main conservative criticism that I heard on the unfortunate day that I watched Fox News, um, (laughs) because I was forced to, was um, it is this element of this new thing called wokeism and and so the, their main point was 1619 seems like such a random year. Why not start with 1776? Teaching critical race theory actually promotes division. And as Americans, that is not who we are. We are a country that is united and not divided. Hmm. There, we heard it again. That's not who we are. That's not who we are. That's exactly who you are. Mm-hmm. Like, well, that's why there was a civil war. Ooh, child. But like, imagine working for years, years to, you know, contri- to sure contribute to the field, but also just working on these things that you're passionate on making, mm-hmm. you know, making these incredibly important contributions 
as someone said, even before the 1619 Project, like, her investigative journalism was fire. Like, she would have been an excellent candidate for tenure before 1619. But that was the thing that brought her some of the, some, some of the highest praise. Imagine working for all of these years for that, for some bankers, for some lawyers, to decide on essentially how important all of the work you did was and decide on what what your future was going to be people who have like no idea what you've actually done and it just goes to show that like it wasn't about her it wasn't about her at all it was about perceptions it was about Mm -hmm. politics Mm -hmm. and this perceived loss of status and power for Mm. for conservative white well really white supremacist projects right it was just like if we can recognize this black woman's work that says that slavery was a thing that happened (laughs) which is literally you know 1619 slavery is a thing that happened and this is you know how it affected the u.s i literally we can't acknowledge the truth can't acknowledge the truth but i i'm thinking speaking of like weathering like we talked about weathering earlier it just makes me think like how exhausting it must be to be a black woman at a southern institution and if mm. unc is anything like duke and in a lot of ways it is right every day is a is a fucking battle right mm-hmm. and so to think that like at least i'm going to be able to to not have to fight this fight no more right like i've submitted this i'm more than enough i'm more than good enough and then to be like oh yeah no <laughs> no mm-hmm. no you're not you're not mm. Yeah, so, you know, there there have been a range of responses to this within academia and outside of it. Because, uh, of course, you know, this this has made headlines. But mm-hmm. people were like, this is an outrage. And then other people were saying, you know, why are you surprised? This is, this is the rule for black mm-hmm. women. This is not the exception. And so I actually just read about a black woman professor um, that UNC has been trying to attract for years, you know, and she withdrew herself from consideration from the position. So there's been all of this, you know, solidarity. People are really rallying around Nicole Hannah-Jones. Um, you know, meanwhile, as people kind of pointed out, there were many, 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 many Black women who have been denied tenure over the years and, you know, never got so much as a tweet in solidarity. So on the one hand, I think people are like, we're glad that this is bringing attention to this issue, but also this issue has been ongoing and there are a lot of people a lot of very qualified people who didn't get the jobs that they that they deserved and so you know this is a reality for scholars of color and especially black scholars especially black women you know the people who are evaluating our work literally know nothing nothing about the work that we do Mm. so they don't even really know how to evaluate it you know So I, I haven't really seen a study like this in the social sciences and humanities, but in 2011, there was an analysis of NIH, which is the National Institutes of Health. So there's an analysis of the NIH grants that showed funding rates for black scientists were 10% lower than for whites, even after factoring in educational background, previous research, publications, and of course, like the prestige of the institution mm. that they're at. And so there was a follow-up study that was published this year that showed ancient changed. Mm-mm. It's the same. And people in 2011 were like, whoa, can't believe it. How can we fix this? And then didn't. 
<laughs> Sorry, that might be loud when you when you listen and to so, it. And so, <laughs> so it's like you know, there's another study that found like behavioral and social science. Social sciences, they're actually less representative of racial and ethnic minorities than the biomedical sciences and engineering. And in many subfields, minorities are less likely to receive funding. So it's something that we know anecdotally, but I don't think that there's numerical data that we can access to understand the extent of it. And I would love to see it because I know it's out there because I filled out the forms those demographic data forms. I filled them out when applying for grants. I want to see the data. <laughs> yeah, I think and there's probably a reason why it's not out there, though. People trying to mystify as much of it as possible. There was one thing that I wanted to mention when we talk, were talking about Serena and Naomi. And we, yeah, what's really interesting in this shift from praising Naomi Osaka, right, when she beat Serena. And then they depicted her as kind of, I don't know if you saw the cartoon where she was depicted almost like a white woman. They lightened her skin, straightened her hair. Um, in comparison, and it was blonde. Yeah. Oh, see, I was like, I thought it, I thought I imagined a blonde, but <laughs> I'm gaslighting myself. Her hair was blonde, like in comparison to Serena, um, where they always tend to p- depict Serena as um, animal-like because she is a dark-skinned black woman and one of the one of the tensions that what i thought about this was in thinking about nicole hannah jones one of the tweets i saw was oh people of course people are going to rally around this woman who is lighter skinned who has all this prestige but imagine how many dark-skinned black women Mm. are brutalized in academia and don't have anyone to avenge them right or Mm -hmm. stand in solidarity with them and unfortunately right colorism does play a huge part and, and who we think um, is worth defending yes. in, when it comes to any type of violence, but especially know your place aggression, right? Like it's actually seen to be more appropriate to, to, to instill into darker skinned people that their place is to be lower, mm-hmm. which is fascinating to me now. Um, but yeah, I think the final thing we'll talk about here before we let you all go back to your after your, your lovely summer um, <laughs> is self-care and this idea of self-care being commercialized. And we all know that in some cases it has been commercialized. It has been commodified. And, you know, we talked about it earlier, the bubble bath, facial, girl, make sure you get your laser treatments every month. Make sure you, you know, get your waxes and your eyebrows done. Like that is how you take care of yourself. Uh, Get your hair did, get your nails done. (laughs) Like that is how you take care of yourself. That is self-care. And people often use Audre Lorde's, or I would say misuse Audre Lorde's quote around self-care being a political act of Mm. warfare to justify this this capitalist understanding of what it means to take care of oneself. Audre Audre Lorde was a socialist, (laughs) y'all. Like she was not sitting in, you know, in her office writing about self-care while she was, you know, dealing with cancer, talking about, oh yeah, I really would like to get my hair done. Like, no, like, honey, no, that's not, (laughs) that was not the thought, right? It was actually what she was saying was that this, this act of taking care of myself as a black woman, as a black woman warrior, as a black lesbian, as a mother, Right in a world that tells me that my place is actually to put everyone else above me, is an act of a political act of warfare. Mm. So, however, 
you take care of yourself, right, is is an act of is an act of warfare. If you recognize, right, that this is actually something that this world is designed that you're not supposed to be able to do, especially as a black woman, you're not supposed to be able to take care of yourself. You're always supposed to be doing things for others. So even all those things that I named before, like the grooming quote things, right, that are supposed to be so you can make yourself more presentable for an outside world. Mm. Like, yes, that's self-care, but tied up in that understanding is that people are going to scrutinize your appearance. And so you need to make sure that you look acceptable in the best way possible. And right. so, I mean, I reject those logics. And I, I like to think about self-care as, yes, me taking care of myself, but also what I can do in community with others. So community care, that's self-care. And then also self-care of just making sure that I have my mental health together. And mm-hmm. my therapist really helped me out with that. She really helped me out. <laughs> In the article, Karitha Mitchell does talk about how having yourself together mentally helps you do the work. She's like, it's mm-hmm. not required to do the work. She definitely makes that point. But it, it helps you do the work. And I think... Yeah, I mean, essentially what we're seeing is this co-optation of self-care as capitalism always Mm -hmm. does in order to, like, keep itself relevant, you know. And and one of my friends pointed out how much it annoys her that, like, the companies and the people that she's working for, you know, they're like, self-care, prioritize self-care, prioritize taking care of yourself, but they don't do anything to facilitate it. Literally. (laughs) They're like, uh, mental health days nah Mm -mm. you want me to take care of myself where's the money Mm -hmm. where's the time off to actually do it where's the where's the support to make it okay for me to take a day off Mm -hmm. to take care of myself where's the child care right those those of you who have children like where's the child care where's the community like to help you like yes 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 for me Saying no Mm. is a form of self-care. Setting boundaries is a form of self-care. Absolutely. Refusing to let them kill us softly, kill us slowly, is self-care. Asking for what you want and need, self-care. Ooh, child, reading me. Because true self-care is not something you can buy. In fact, true self-care threatens capitalism. Self-care actually threatens the institution that will gleefully profit off you working yourself into the ground and then replace you as soon as you're gone. Mm. There is nothing that power fears more than someone with the agency, confidence, courage, and security to refuse. And that's why we're taught to believe in scarcity. We're taught to believe that there are only so many opportunities, only so much money, only so many romantic partners particularly for people like us. Mm -hmm. And capitalism thrives not on our fear of rejection, but of our fear of rejecting. Mm -hmm. We're raised to feel guilty, to fear not being liked, or dismissed as angry black women, or as being too picky if we choose to refuse. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to say, be steadfast in your commitment to keeping Nope alive. I mean, that's it. I raised my fist, but you guys can't see. <laughs> Her, like, 
mean, that's all we have for y'all today. <laughs> okay. That's oh, do I get the final word? I never get the final word. This is it. This is it. And Brendan usually you know, takes us home. You're usually I, the one who takes I us say, home. No, this is it. I say, I'm sorry. I'm, I got to copy and paste this and put this on my mood board, honey. <laughs> Ashe, that's all we have for y'all today. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by the lovely Alyssa James and myself. Our intern is Mankute Whaley and music is by Segnon Tewol. The podcast is distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast is generously funded by the Racial Justice Mini-Grant Program at Columbia University, which is funded through partnership with the Office of University Life, the Office of the Vice Provost for Faculty Advancement, and the Institute for Religion, Culture, and Public Life. Further funding has been provided by grants from the Office for Academic Diversity and Inclusion, the Arts and Science Graduate Council, and donations from listeners just like you. Thank all of y'all for your support. We love hearing from you, and we've really appreciated the conversations we've been having with you all in the DMs, in the emails. You can head to zorasdaughters.com to find transcripts for the episodes, our bios, contact info, and ways to support the podcast. Continue the conversation with us about Black women's mental health and self-care on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. And until next time, our final episode of the season, we want to remind you that we must take care of ourselves and each other. Bye. Bye. Bye.